this morning, I want to welcome you to New Hope Chapel's morning service, praise service. I want to welcome those online as well. And of course, I see people here that I have not seen before, so I welcome the guests. I did notice one mother who had taken this little child and she was bopping up and down and jumping. And I think that child probably believed that she had made it to Disney World. <laughs> she was just so taken back. And mom was, thank you, mom. She had a great praise service this morning. Good morning. Well, I do have a title. The title is, simply put, Jews, Jerusalem, and Jesus. My text is the first book in the Bible, Genesis, chapter 17, verses 1 through 8, and verses 17 through 21. You, of course, have an outline for those of you who are here. You have a a handout, those of you on virtual, just have the title and uh, the outline. I've got to tell you a little story that I have shared many times with you, I think, because it just strikes me, it just gets to my heart, this little boy who was eight years old, in our body, his mother was telling me that he really, really enjoys when I preach. And she said to her, you know, I really like it when Pastor Dan preaches. And she said to the eight-year-old, well, why? Well, because Pastor Dan always has an outline. And that means that I can tell when it's almost over. You've heard me say that before. I'm sure there's some adults that feel the same way. They're just so excited that I have an outline. Finally, we know when it's coming to a close. So walk with me as I walk through Psalm 1914, as I always do, asking the Lord to anoint these, my words, but his thoughts. So dear Lord, this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. You know, Frederick the Great of Prussia was a staunch Lutheran, a very religious man. But he began to read Voltaire, the French writer and skeptic, and he began to doubt his Christian faith. And he was so tormented by his doubt that he called in one of the court's chaplains and said, forget your philosophy, forget your theology. I want you to give me just one piece of firm proof that there is a God and that the Bible is the word of God. Well, that court chaplain simply replied, the Jew, sire, the Jew, If you ever begin to doubt the person of God or the power of God or the promises of God, I would invite you to simply look at the Jew. If you want to know how the hand of God is moving in history, there are two things you need to watch, a people and a place. The people are the Jews and the place is Israel. You see, Israel is to the world what the sun is to the planets. Just as surely as the planets revolve around the sun, the nations of this world revolve around Israel. Israel is the geographical center of the world. Ezekiel 5.5 says, 
Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set her in the midst of the nations and the countries all around her. You may know that this tiny country, that the three great continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa, meet together there. It's the spiritual center of the world. It is here that the greatest person of human history, the Lord Jesus Christ, was born, lived, and died, arose, and ascended. And it is here that one day Jesus will return to rule and to reign over this earth. The three major religions of this world, Islam, Judaism, and Christianity, claim Jerusalem as their spiritual capital. It's the prophetical center of the earth. If you want to know what time it is on God's clock, look at Israel. If you want to know what day it is on God's calendar, look at Israel. If you want to know what degree it is on God's thermometer, look at Israel. You can summarize all of the prophecy in the Bible in three words. Jews, Jerusalem, and Jesus. It's the political center of the world. It's here that Armageddon, the last battle of the last war, will be fought. You know, David encouraged us in Psalm 122.6. He said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now, why didn't he say to pray for peace on earth? Because there will be no peace on earth until there is peace in Jerusalem, and there will be no peace in Jerusalem until the Prince of Peace returns. Now, what does all this have to do with you and me in 2021? In this 17th chapter of Genesis God made a promise to the founder and the father of the nation of Israel concerning the fate and future of that nation. This promise that God made to Israel is the throttle that guides all of human history, like an invisible iron hand moving the currents of time in history in a certain direction. For anyone interested in the past, the present, and the future, and how it all ties together. There is plenty of food on the table for all here. There is history here. There is prophecy here. There is theology here. So first, in your outline, consider a declaration of the person of God. You know, it had been quite a long time since God had personally appeared to Abraham. He has spoken to him in visions and dreams, but now again he appears to Abraham and he does a very strange thing. He identifies himself. In our text, verse 1, it states, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. Now that may seem strange at first because obviously Abraham knew who God was just by the sound of his voice. But God had a special purpose in identifying himself. He calls himself by a special name. This special name tells us two things about him. First, he deserves our confidence. God identified himself as Almighty God. And this is the first time this name is ever used for God. The name in the Hebrew is El Shaddai 
The name El is the name for God, which literally means the God of power. The name Shaddai literally means to be strong. And you take these together, and this name literally means God who can do anything. And theologians have a term for this called omnipotence. But sometimes that term is thrown around rather loosely and is sometimes used to mean something different than the biblical meaning of the term. You see, to say that God is omnipotent is not to say that God can do anything, because if God can do anything, then God can die, God can sin, God could lie. But of course, we know that God can do none of those. So when I say that God is omnipotent, I mean God can do anything that would not deny his character, defy his power, or decry his truthfulness. Now, if God is biblically omnipotent, and there is nothing godly he cannot do, then obviously he would deserve our complete confidence and trust. If God is this kind of God, then it is shameful, it is sinful, it is just plain stupid not to put your faith and your trust in him. Secondly, he deserves our commitment. Because God is all-powerful, because he is omnipotent, he not only deserves our commitment, he has the right to demand our commitment. So he says to Abraham, walk before me. And be blameless. See, God being who he is and me being what I am tells me that no sacrifice I could make for God is too great. As the saying goes, he deserves our life, our soul, our all. And Abraham made just that kind of commitment and gave God that kind of confidence. For in verse 3, tells us that Abraham fell on his face. In the Bible, that is the position of submission. When a man falls on his face before God, he's literally saying, I am all years. I'm going to believe all that you say, and I'm going to do whatever I'm told. See, one of the greatest principles you will ever learn from the Bible is this. Faith honors God. But God honors faith. God honored Abraham's faith with godly faithfulness. Secondly, in your outline, consider a demonstration of the power of God. Up until this point, the patriarch was known by the name of Abram, which literally means father of many. Now that was mockery enough because he had only had one child, and that was by Sarah's servant named Hagar. But God now changes the name from Abram, meaning father of many, to Abraham, meaning father of multitudes. Now this name must have been both a mystery and even more mockery to Abraham. Because he was 99 years old, Sarah was 90 years old, both of them far past the age of childbearing. Now, I think everyone here would agree that it takes real faith for a 100-year-old man to be with a 90-year-old woman and then immediately begin to look for a house with a nursery. (laughs) 
Well, that is exactly the kind of faith God was demanding of Abraham. In fact, you notice that God says in verse 5, I have made you. I have made you the father of many nations. You know, as far as God is concerned, it's a done deal. The great missionary Hudson Taylor said, there are three stages in any work of God. Impossible, difficult, and done. Well, as far as God was concerned, this was done. He was saying to Abraham, you could take that to the bank. See, God promised Abraham that he would make of him a great and mighty nation. But at the time God promised Abraham this, Abraham was the president of H-A-R-P, the Hebrew Association of Retired People. (laughs) He was 100 years old. He had been drawing Social Security for 40 years. And his wife at 90 years was no spring chicken either. (laughs) To be blunt about it, their get up and go had got up and gone. (laughs) Quite frankly, they needed a miracle. That's where God comes in. I heard about a 350-pound lady who got up in church and sang a solo entitled, He Lifted Me. The praise team leader then followed right after her and said, let's all stand and sing, it took a miracle. (laughs) Well, we serve a miracle-working God. The Bible says that Sarah did conceive, Sarah did bear a son, his name was Isaac. Today there are 18 million Jews Israelites who inhabit the earth, all because of a miraculous birth of a baby boy to a 100-year-old father and a 90-year-old mother who dared to believe that God, for whom nothing was impossible. You know, I want to tell you something. If there is anybody on the face of the earth that ought to believe in the virgin birth, it's the Jew Because just as every Christian owes his origin to a miraculous birth, every Jew owes his origin to a miraculous birth. Every Jew that you see walking on the face of this earth today is a reminder of the awesome power of God. Third in your outline, consider a dedication of the promise of God. You know, when God makes a promise... He will move heaven and earth to fulfill it, no matter how small or insignificant you might think it is. F.B. Meyer once said this, quote, If any promise of God should fail, the heavens would clothe themselves in sackcloth, the sun and the moon and the stars would fall from their courses, and the universe would rock, and a hollow wind would moan through a ruined creation the awful message that God can lie. Our God is a God who cannot lie. Hebrews 6.18 says, It is impossible for God to lie. This promise that God makes here is both unprecedented and unrepeated. Now notice that the promise is made to a specific person. Our text, verse 2, states, And I will make my covenant between me and you 
and will multiply you exceedingly. This promise is made specifically to Abraham. Furthermore, it is made for a specific people. Our text verse 7 says, And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for all everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. This promise is made concerning the Jewish race. It's not for the Arab, as will become clearer. Let's read chapter 17, verses 17 to 21. It states, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed, and said in his heart, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant, and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard from him. I have, heard, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Again, verse 21, it's so relevant in today's times. It tells us, but my covenant... I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. It's politically incorrect in some areas of the world, even in some areas of of the United States. But the promise was not to Ishmael or to the Arabs. It was to Isaac and the Jews. Also notice it was for a specific period. It is called in verse 7, an everlasting covenant. This promise is to be effective forever and ever. But it is also for a specific place. Our text verse 8 states, Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now you can call it Israel, Palestine, the Holy Land, or whatever you choose. But the Bible is clear. That land belongs to the Jewish people. Furthermore, keep in mind that this promise is unconditional, that it is all of grace. It is unchangeable. It has been planted in the concrete of the word of God, and neither God nor his word can change. And furthermore, it is unbreakable. You know, Abraham may fail, but God's plan will not. Abraham may fall, but God's power will not. Abraham may forget, but God's promise will not. Because all of the initiative, all of the intent, and all of the insistence of this promise comes from God. Listen. 
In your outline, God makes a fourfold promise to Abraham's children, the Jewish race. A promise that God is in the process of keeping at this very moment. First promise, the promise to sanctify the Jews. Verse 6 states, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. God promises that the Jewish people would be both productive and prosperous. Has God kept his promise? Well, even though the Jews are not a great people in number, making up only two-tenths of one percent of the world's population, did you know that they have won 15% of all the honors in medicine, health, public life, science? Did you know that in the last 25 years, one-third of the Nobel Nobel Prize winners have been Jews? Did you know that it was a Jew by the name of Bayer who developed aspirin? A Jew by the name of Salk who developed a polio vaccine. A Jew by the name of Stritcher who developed Novocaine. A Jew by the name of Funk who developed vitamins to list but a few. Also, you notice that little statement. Verse 6. And kings shall come from you. The greatest kingdom in the history of the world was the kingdom of Israel. And the greatest kingdom who ever lived was King David. The wisest, the richest, and the most powerful king who ever lived was his son, Solomon. Do I need to remind you that it was through the Jewish people that God gave us the king of kings and the lords of lords, Jesus Christ himself? Second promise, the promise to safeguard the Jew. Now remember in verse 7, we are told that this covenant was to be an everlasting covenant. Now an everlasting covenant can only be made with an everlasting people. Listen, the Jewish people are the only indestructible race in the world. As you study the word of God, you will see the Jews disobedient. You will see the Jews dispersed. You will see the Jews dishonored. You will see the Jews disgraced. But you will never see the Jews destroyed. Pharaoh could not diminish the Jew. The Red Sea could not drown the Jew. Jonah's fish couldn't digest the Jew. (laughs) The Romans could not defeat the Jew. Hitler's gas ovens could not destroy the Jew. There is an amazing prophecy in Ezekiel 38.8 where God, prophesying about modern-day Russia, says this. Listen. After many days you will be visited. In the latter years you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel which had long been desolate They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. Amen? Amen. Israel is the only modern nation that has been brought back from the sword. Hitler's sword alone killed six million of them, one million being children. You know, yet they were brought back out of many nations, and today there are more than 80 nationalities 
represented in modern Israel's population. You know, so many throughout the centuries have thought that they have finally buried the Jew, only to have him sit up in his casket and wave hello to the pallbearers. (laughs) Think about it. After thousands of years, you can't find Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Ammonites, Moabites, or Amorites, but the Jew is alive and well. And today, Israel, with a population of only 6.8 million people, is the fourth strongest military power in the world after the United States, Russia, and China, and is the only nuclear Middle East country. It produces its own tanks, planes, and military weapons. The third promise is this, the promise to secure the Jew. Again, verse 8, Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land in Canaan as an everlasting possession. An everlasting possession and I will be their God. You cannot speak about the Jew without also speaking about the land. Theodore Heschel, a leading rabbi and Jewish author, once said this, Jewish life in the land of Israel is part of our integrity. To abandon the land would make a mockery of all our longings, prayers, and commandments. To abandon the the land would be to repudiate the Bible. I tell you, without exaggeration, that the greatest prophetic event of two millennia took place in 1948 when the Jewish people were regathered to their land. How can anyone deny that this was a movement of God in light of Amos 9, verses 14 and 15, which states, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land. And no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. See, neither space nor time will permit the recounting of the miracle of their restoration. Just briefly to think that this nation at that time of 650,000 Jews surrounded by 40 million Arabs being outnumbered 40 to 1 in troops, 100 to 1 in population, 1,000 to 1 in military equipment, and yet fighting against all odds gained their independence. Well, has God kept his promise? 60% of the land was barren desert a land of rock and dirt. But you go there today and you can see rocks being turned into diamonds, dry desert being turned into fertile farmland. In Israel, it only rains in the winter. There has always been a scarcity of water. Yet because of the most effective irrigation system in the world, the land now blossoms like a rose. You know, today, Israel is only one of six countries in the world that produces enough food to feed itself and to feed others. 
In the last 25 years, over 100 million trees have been planted on barren hills and desert soil, trees that give much-needed oxygen and nutrients to the soil, as well as beauty to the land. It is all because of the promise of God. It's no surprise. The Arabs and so-called Palestinians want the land. And the fourth promise is this. The promise to save the Jew. There is one last promise that's going to be fulfilled in the nation of Israel. For after God was to bring them back to their land, as he has now, he says in verse 8, I will be their God. Now you may not know it, but today that is not true of the Jewish race. Only a minority of the Jewish people known as Orthodox Jews actually practice what would be considered biblical Judaism. The vast majority of Jews today either do not believe in God or basically live as if there was no God. And there is still such a hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ that recently the Jewish Supreme Court ruled that if a Jew converts to Christianity, he can never become a citizen of the nation of Israel. Well, I take solace is still another promise that God makes. In Romans eleven twenty six, 26, it says, And so all Israel will be saved. One of these days, they will receive the Lord Jesus Christ gladly, happily, excitedly, enthusiastically. Zechariah 12.10 prophesied, listen, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as he grieves for a firstborn. Amen. Blinded Jewish eyes will be opened. Hardened Jewish hearts will be melted and they will realize and recognize and receive Jesus Christ as their true Messiah. You know, Zechariah goes on to say in Zechariah 13:1, In that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. You know, those of us here who, who know and love the Lord Jesus, we know about that fountain. It is a fountain filled with the blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood, they lose all the guilty stains of sin. You know, there are 7,000 487 promises in the Bible that God has given to man. And I'll tell you that not one of them will fall to the ground unfulfilled. Well, I want to leave you with three solid rock truths about God that you should never forget as you view the events of this world. First, God's people cannot be destroyed. Two, God's promise cannot be denied. And third, God's purpose cannot be defeated. You have God's word on that. You can take that to the bank. Amen? Amen. Now, in closing, I want us to commemorate the institution of the Lord's Supper. 
So in front of you, you see the emblems for communion this morning. Uh, you all know how they work, the top little layers. This, if I can have one, Kath. You might want to loosen <clears throat> the top layer just so we can, you can pull the, the bread. I call it the host, but then you know why I call it the host. Let's consider 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three to 26. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's share his body. Verse 25, In the same manner he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me, in remembrance of the Lord. Verse 26 states, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen? Amen. So this morning as you leave, I want you to take in your hearts the thought that the day is coming when we as Christians will share this communion with the Jews. Amen?